Hello, my name is Jill Drake, and I'd like to welcome you to week three of Jen Wilkins' study, God of Creation. This week focuses on God's work in Genesis 1. I have a deep personal interest in the biblical creation account. It's a very important part of my faith story, but not necessarily in a positive way, at least not at first. I grew up in a Christian home in which we regularly attended church. I was baptized as a baby, went to Sunday school as a child, made my confirmation in ninth grade, generally paid attention to the sermons on Sunday morning, and overall considered myself a good Christian girl. I was a good student. I excelled in math and science in high school and then decided to pursue a degree in environmental science with the goal of saving the earth from impending environmental doom. I'm still working on that. Because my faith was important to me, I chose to attend a small private school that was affiliated with the, the church. As part of the curriculum, I had to take a freshman seminar class designed to help us think like college students, to do research, to write papers, present arguments, and engage in discussions. We were able to choose our seminar from a list of topics, and being the good Christian girl and future scientist that I was, I chose evolution versus creationism as my topic. Here I am, as a college freshman, so excited to dig into my seminar topic and learn new things about how the Bible and the Big Bang came together to tell the deep, rich story of the beginnings of our universe. How naive I was. I seem to have missed that middle word in the title of the class, evolution versus creationism. The class was taught by a professor who was also the head of the chemistry department. It was made up of students who were assigned to him as their advisor, which meant that everyone in the class was also pursuing a degree in one of the natural sciences. And if any of those other students had come to college with a faith that was established in their childhood, it was not immediately obvious. I quickly learned in that first semester that the claim that my school was affiliated with the church doesn't mean the same thing as Christian college. The church affiliation was more of a historical fact than a present reality. Encouraging Christian faith was not a priority in my school's curriculum, as it turned out. And in my freshman seminar, there wasn't much respect shown for the Genesis creation account. It was picked apart and cast off in light of modern scientific theory. Nothing in my Christian upbringing had prepared me to defend my tender young faith in the face of scientific argument. In that class, I tried my best to demonstrate how the six days of creation that we studied this week paralleled the scientific account of the formation of the universe, but I didn't know how to explain the appearance of plants on day three before the appearance of the sun on day four. I felt foolish, naive, and childish as my attempts fell flat. As I heard my classmates arguing one by one for science over creationism, I began feeling like the only student who had brought her security blanket to college with her, stupid and exposed. I also felt terribly alone. By the end of the semester, I had figured out that if I was going to continue on my current path of study in college, I need to make a choice, science or God. And I buckled, and I chose science. In Matthew's account of the parable of the sower, some of the seed that the farmers sowed fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, 
and they withered because they had no root. Later in this chapter, Jesus explains what this means. He said, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This is a perfect illustration of my faith at this time. As the seminar class progressed, the tender shoot of faith that had started to grow in my childhood withered and died in the rocky soil of my new environment. You see, my understanding of Genesis 1 was based on the premise that it was written to explain how the universe was created. But this is not what it was ever meant to do. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament somewhere around 1400 BC, thousands of years before humans would have the scientific knowledge to be able to start answering questions of how the universe began. God didn't speak to Moses in concepts that he would never be able to comprehend. Rather, he met Moses where he was and used language and ideas that were very familiar to him and to the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world. Concepts like chaos and order, light and dark, form and purpose. As Moses was preparing his Israelite audience to enter and possess the pagan land of Canaan, God wasn't equipping, equipping him with the answer of how the universe was made. That wasn't the issue that Moses was concerned with at all. No, God was equipping him by answering much more pressing questions as they prepared for battle. The Israelites needed to know who this God was and who was sending them into enemy territory. They needed to know that their God was good, trustworthy, and sovereign. So Moses wrote Genesis 1 to answer questions like who created the universe and why he created it. In her video last week, Jen talked about the opening line of all of scripture and unpacked for us some of the incredible implications of such a simple-sounding statement. Jen observed things like, God is not bound by time. Rather, he exists outside of time. The, God is the source of all things, including time itself. God knows everything there is to know. He holds perfect knowledge of everything, including things which might have been. And if at one time only God existed, then everything he created is not in, in needed for his existence. God needs nothing. In next week's video, Jen is going to paint an, an incredible picture of the first six days of creation that you studied this week and how they relate to us today. You will not want to miss that video. So for this week, as you move into your discussion of Genesis 1, I'd like to revisit a few of the things that Jen talked about last week and explore them a bit more deeply to help frame your conversation. I'd like to consider the following questions. One, who is the God who creates? Two, why does God create? And three, what is the proper response to our creator? So let's begin with the first question. Who is the God who creates? Jen made a statement in last week's video expressing something that she hoped would be obvious to all of us. The Bible is a book about God. It's worth pausing and thinking about that carefully for a moment. The Bible is one long, continuous story from Genesis to Revelation, 
from creation to new creation. It begins with God's work in creation, then human rebellion. It runs through the history of Israel to Jesus, followed the, by the birth of the church, and ends with Jesus' final victory over sin and death and the consummation of the kingdom of God. The central figure throughout all of Scripture is God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we were to sum up the entire Bible story in one sentence, it would be this. The Bible is a story of God acting in history for the salvation of the world. Therefore, it's appropriate that for every passage or page of Scripture that we read, we continually ask ourselves this question. What does this tell me about God and His nature? In Genesis 1, we get an early glimpse at who God is. He is a God of order. As you saw in your homework this week, God had a formula for creating that Moses repeated throughout his description of the first days of creation. In the first three days, God brought order out of chaos. In the last three days, he gave function to the order he created. Again, Jen will dig in deeper and unpack this for us more in next week's video. Another thing we see here in the first six days of creation is our first glimpse of the Trinity. Now, Moses and his Israelite audience would not have had an understanding of the triune nature of God. This would become clearer to the gospel and epistle writers of the New Testament as they reflected back on Jesus' life and teachings. For example, we see this at the end of the book of Matthew. At the end of his gospel, Matthew records Jesus giving the Great Commission and commanding his followers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. By the time of the early church, Christ's followers understood that all three persons of the Trinity were active in creation. We see this in the Nicene Creed, which was written around 325 AD. Now, I grew up in a church that recited the creed every Sunday. Perhaps you did too. If so, then this may sound familiar to you. Article 1 of the Nicene Creed, which defines who the church believes the first person of the Trinity is, states, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Article 2 establishes the church's beliefs about the second person of the Trinity. It's the longest portion of the creed, and it begins like this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Article 3, which establishes the church's belief about the third person of the Trinity, also refers to his role in creation. It reads, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. On day one of the homework this week, we examine the role of the Holy Spirit. Jen had us reflect on verse 2, which reads, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. She had us read other passages which pointed to the Holy Spirit as the life giver. Therefore, what we see here is the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, waiting to bring forth life once chaos had given way to order. So the Nicene Creed helps us to see the distinct actions of all three persons of the Trinity at work here in Genesis 1. The Father is the maker of heaven and earth. 
the Son is the one through whom all things were made, and the Spirit is the giver of life. Now, the Trinity can be a difficult thing for Christians to understand. In fact, it's a mystery that we don't have the ability to unravel. We only need to understand that our God is three persons, both distinct and fully united, existing in a state of perfect community and love. Dr. Beth Jones, Wheaton College professor and theologian, states it this way, The creed affirms that God is relationship. The Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The loving relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go right to the heart and essence of who God is. Now, incidentally, the next time that we see in God's story all three persons of the Trinity together in one scene will be at the baptism of Jesus, which is an, the event that begins his public ministry. Matthew records the scene for us in chapter 3 of his gospel. It reads, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Dr. Jones asks us to pause here and consider what Matthew is telling us about the triune nature of our Creator. She says, Here the Father speaks. The Son emerges from the water, and the Spirit descends. All three persons of the triune God are active in this moment, as at every moment. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And in total continuity with the Old Testament, there is only one God. And why did Jesus enter into our world, teach, heal people, endure the cross, and defeat death? To bring about new creation. I'll repeat that. Jesus came to restore God's sin-stained creation and to bring it into new glory the way it was always meant to be. The Gospel writers understood this and intentionally connect the life of Jesus with his role in creation in Genesis 1. Mark begins his Gospel with the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, deliberately evoking images of Genesis 1.1. John was more direct in his approach, opening his gospel with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The God who creates was not satisfied to leave his creation in the corruption of sin or to walk away from it entirely. He himself entered into the mess we made to bring about new creation. This brings us to the second question I'd like to explore today. Why did God create? Question for you. Why do painters paint? Why do sculptors sculpt? Perhaps some of you are artists of one kind or another and can reflect on that for a moment. If you don't paint or sculpt, maybe you make scrapbooks or note cards, or maybe you're an avid photographer any quilters in the house? Knitters? Poets? Whatever your particular form of artistic expression, I ask you, what drives you to create your art? Now, I'm neither a painter nor a sculptor. In fact, I was gifted with very little in the way of artistic ability. But one thing I do love to do is cook. I enjoy the entire process, 
from planning a meal and grocery shopping to all the prep work that goes into making good food from scratch. But my favorite part of all is gathering my family together around the table and sharing it with them, especially if it's something that they really enjoy. When they go back for seconds, when they tell me how much they liked it, or when they fight over the leftovers, well, that brings me a great deal of joy. And for me, cooking is a labor of love and one that makes me truly happy. Jen made it clear last week that God did not create out of any kind of need. There's nothing outside of himself that God needs. He is completely self-sufficient. She also made it clear that God didn't create out of loneliness. As we just discussed, the three persons of the Trinity exist in perfect love and perfect community. So God did not create in order to fill a hole where something was missing because nothing was missing. Rather, Jen said that God's intention for creation is to reflect his glory. We and all of creation are meant to be megaphones that declare the glory of God. But what does that mean? This may sound strange or even off-putting to our ears, but we need to understand that our triune God is perfect love, perfect relationships, and perfect community. And everything he created came out of that perfect love for the purpose of being in perfect relationship with him. This was God's original intention for all of creation, to be part of the perfect community of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the scene that we see in the Garden of Eden before the serpent enters the picture. We were created and are continuously sustained by the outpouring of love that comes from our triune God. We are wanted and loved by our Creator, and in His eyes, we are very good. This is worthy of all of our praise and thanksgiving. Julian of Norwich had a simple and beautiful vision for the relationship between the Creator and creation. Julian was an anchoress, which is a person who lives in seclusion for the purpose of intense religious devotion. And she lived in England during the late 1300s. Here's a painting of her with her cat. Actually, I have no idea whether she owned the cat or not, but here she is with a cat. Julian lived through the horrors of the Black Plague as people fell ill and died all around her. At age 30, Julian herself fell gravely ill and thought she might be on her deathbed. Fortunately, she was wrong. But during this time of illness, she received several visions from God, which she later wrote down. And one of her more famous visions was of the relationship between God and creation. It goes like this. And he showed me more, a little thing, the size of a hazelnut on the palm of my hand, round like a ball. I looked at it thoughtfully and wondered, what is this? And the answer came, it is all that is made. I marveled that it continued to exist and did not suddenly disintegrate. It was so small. And again, my mind supplied the answer. It exists both now and forever because God loves it. In short, everything owes its existence to the love of God. Beautiful, isn't it? That really helps put it all in perspective. He is so big and we are so very small. And yet, ever since sin entered the picture and disrupted our relationship with God, we seem to have a hard time remembering our proper place with respect to Him. 
We tend to want to be the sustainers of our own lives, even though that's not really possible. But more on that in coming weeks. So back to our question, why did God create? Well, first of all, it's in his nature to create, just like it's in a painter's nature to paint and in my nature to cook. It pleases him to create. We know this by the repetition of the phrase, it is good, at the end of each of the six days of creation. He creates from the abundance of love that overflows out of the Trinity, and he creates because his creation brings him joy. Think about that for a minute. You bring him joy because you are his creation. And when he looks at you, he thinks it is very good. And that brings us to our third question of the day. How should we respond to creation in light of Genesis 1? As I mentioned earlier, I am filled with joy when my family loves the food that I prepare for them. I love when they linger around the table, taking the time to be together and telling me how much they enjoy my gift to them. But how do you think I'd feel if one of them took their plate of food and put it on the floor for the dog to eat? Or if they decided they'd rather have peanut butter and jelly than the meal that I just made for them? Or worse yet, what if they made a PB&J? Then they took the time to praise it and tell it how wonderful it is. This is what sin and idolatry are like to God. They take our focus off the Creator and cause us to battle for control of our own lives, for our own glory. It separates us from being in community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But again, more on that in coming weeks. For now, as we linger in chapter 1 of Genesis and the first six days of creation, just know that our response should be to look up and marvel at the majesty of our God and to glorify using Him using whatever gifts He gave us to use. Artistic talent, poetry, music, hospitality, friendship, time, and yes, even through scientific discovery. We should remember that even though we live in a world that has been broken by sin, God still loves it and is actively involved in His creation. We honor Him by taking the time to care for the world that He gave us, remembering that it is good. Psalm 24 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. This is a good reminder that every person we encounter was also made in his image, whether they're young or old, our friends or our enemies, people in position of power in our lives, or the disenfranchised. This even applies to the person who cuts us off in traffic or who said something so annoying on social media. We must always remember that when he looks upon them, he sees his good creation in them. He loves them with the same unimaginable love that he has for us. So we can honor God by trying to see others as he sees them. And finally, I think that a good and proper response to our creator is simply awe and wonder, that the same God who set the universe into motion and holds it in the palm of his hand also sees you, knows you, and wants you to be in relationship with him. So as we wrap things up today, I'd like to go back to this 18-year-old girl. Boy, would I love to have the chance to go back in time and talk to her during that dark season in her faith journey. If I could, Here's what I would tell her about the way Genesis 1 should speak to her. 
And friends, I want you to receive this for yourselves as well. I would tell her that she is a work of art created by a master artist who loves her more than she could ever know. I would tell her that she was created to be in relationship with the triune God of the universe and to reflect his glory into the world through the gifts, talents, and relationships that he bestowed upon her. That is her entire purpose for being. I would assure her that he is the sustainer of all things, and we can trust him with our very lives. And I would tell her not to fear or despair during that freshman seminar. Science is not the end of God, or the enemy of God, or the antithesis of God. It is the revelation of God. Everything discoverable through science should point us back to him and cause us to marvel at how intricately and beautifully he created this masterpiece of a universe and everything in it. Science is just another one of the many megaphones through which we can declare his glory. I would tell her that God is truth and that his word can be trusted, always. I'd like to thank you again for joining me today and I'd like to end with a prayer. Heavenly Father, our Lord and Creator, you are indescribably good and infinitely loving. Thank you for bringing us together today to study your word and thank you for making yourself known to us in your creation. I pray for your blessing on each one of these ladies who are with us today and that each one of them may grow in their faith and their knowledge of you and that they may all know just how much you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.